Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at people making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. I'm your host, Erwin Lee. Season 2 continues with this episode's conversation with Soleil Ho, restaurant critic at the San Francisco Chronicle. Soleil's powerful storytelling around food began with her award-nominated podcast, Racist Sandwich. Now, as a critic, her writing stays true to connecting dining with the bigger issues, like labor, climate change, and colonialism. But most of all, she spotlights the hardworking people that make menus possible everywhere. Here's Soleil with podcast manager Lin Nguyen. Hi, Soleil. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. First off, could you tell us about growing up in a Vietnamese household in New York? What are some of your strongest food memories? Yeah, so I was born in Chicago, and my mom moved me and my sister to New York so that she could work in the fashion industry there. Um, it was really fun actually, to be a kid in New York. It's one of the best places to be. There's so much to explore and there's so much interesting food to eat. And so she was a single mom. And for dinner, we would often get delivery, even McDonald's delivered in the 90s, which is really interesting now. She would fan out the menus, all the takeout menus for these restaurants. And so we would pick if we want Indian or Chinese or Thai or Korean food that night, which was really fun and a good way to like broaden your palate. Um, yeah, so that was, I lived there until I went away for college in, I don't know, 2005. So it was a really, really cool time to be there. As a kid, did you ever think you'd have your career as a chef and now a food writer? Mm. No, I didn't even think that was a, I mean, I used to read food critics a lot when I was a kid, actually. Um, I would read them in magazines and in the newspaper because I thought it was so interesting to think about what restaurants were cool and upcoming in my own neighborhood. And it's just so fun to read about food. I think I wanted to be, what did I want to be? I think I wanted to be a physicist, actually. I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid um, because I was really into sci-fi. So that was sort of where my head was at. I didn't really think of myself as a writer until shortly after college, actually, when I ended up doing it to make money. What kind of writing did you foray into when in college? Oh, gosh. Uh, when I was in college, it was mostly a school writing, you know, um, papers. I ended up doing a couple small pieces for random, like, school magazines that we had. So I wrote a review of Memoirs of a Geisha, the movie. That was one thing. Um, i trying to think of other things I've written, but it was mostly that and, like, zines. It was, it was little stuff. I never thought of myself as one of the newspaper kids. You know what I mean? They were their own clique. I was not cool enough. You mentioned like takeout food in New York as part of your childhood. Were you also surrounded by Vietnamese cooking at home? Yeah, I'd say so. My mom didn't have a ton of time to cook all like every meal, but whenever we would visit my family in Illinois, where you know she was raised, my grandmother would cook a lot of meals for us. She would she's always cooking. I think the only time my grandparents go out is for. Um, for special occasions, and they go to, like, the hometown buffet or <laughs> old country buffet, like, American food. That's what they find really interesting and funny when they go out. And so my grandmother cooks, like, pho and curry and all these sorts of things at home, which I always thought was so good. I think Sunday afternoon lunch was a big highlight. You've written about how your name reminds you of the complex French-Vietnamese relationship. 
How does your name shape your identity? And what goes into your choice to be known as Soleil rather than V, your Vietnamese name? Mm. Yeah, it's complicated, right? So I didn't really get it at first when I was a kid. I remember being so frustrated, actually, because the common thing is that immigrant kids get their American name and then they have their like middle name be their like family name or their home name, essentially, and then their last name. And so I remember being really mad that my mom picked my American name to be a word that Americans couldn't even pronounce still. I was like, what the hell? Like, I, just give me something that they can pronounce. Isn't that the point? Like the function of the American name? So <laughs> I have been called so many things. Uh, Soleil, Soleil, and people would try to like Asianify it and call me Soli, which is really funny. But yeah, I went as V for a long time in high school, a little bit in college. And when I went to college, I thought, okay, let me try out Soleil because no one called me that up until then. And I tried it out and it was like, eh, I don't know, it doesn't really feel right. It's a little too fancy for me. <laughs> what ended up happening is when I started working, you know, after college, people saw that name on my applications and they just started calling me that. And when I started publishing, I just used that name because it was what was on my, you know, W-4 forms. That was my real name. And so it stuck. And now a lot more people call me Soleil than V. And it's a very interesting inversion of most of my life. So, um, yeah, it feels strange, especially because when I realized it was French, I thought, okay, that's odd. And then when I learned about the history of the French in Vietnam, I was like, oh, that's super odd. But my mom just loves French culture. And I think that's just not her fault. It's also just what she likes. But I certainly saw it as one part of the overall like mission of France and Vietnam where and this is how colonialism plays out, where you think you think that your culture is worth importing. And so you impress upon local people that your own culture is really, really important and more important than theirs through schooling, through other cultural projects. And that's just what happens. Zooming out on French colonial histories, I'd like to hear your thoughts about banh mi, a well-known Vietnamese food that reflects French influence on Vietnamese cuisine. Oh, yeah. Um... Bun mi is interesting, right? Because when I was growing up, bun mi just meant sandwich. You know, like my grandmother would make me like a cold cuts bun mi with like butter and cheese. You know, that was just what it was. And so when I got older, people associated that word with Vietnamese sandwiches in particular, which I had to adjust to. And yeah, like <laughs> there are a lot of things that I find really fascinating about bun mi as an argument, as a, a symbol. Because people think of it as fusion. They think of it as a marriage, or they use this very soft terminology, I think, when describing it um, as something that came apart fortuitously, harmoniously through that French-Vietnamese relationship. When really, I mean, the power dynamic of colonizer and colonized is a lot more violent, right? It's a lot more exploitative, and it takes more. It's more vampiric than that. Um, it's not as pleasant as... Um, you shook your hands and now there's a sandwich. <laughs> um, it is, you know, banh mi and pho too, which is used from, historically, it was a way to use up like the refuse from these French kitchens, these French homes. You know, they wouldn't eat the bones or like that's what Vietnamese people had from from beef. And so they would make it into soup to make it stretch longer, you know, and that's why like it's kind of scrappy. It's a scrappy kind of dish. Because people are really 
even in the worst sorts of circumstances, they will find a way to feed themselves. And I find that really powerful to think about too. So rather than being a confirmation of the wonderment of colonialism, I find it to be an extension of it and also more of a testament of the resilience of Vietnamese people, but also colonized people who will make entire cuisines from the scraps of their oppressors. I think about it, especially with Filipino cuisine. You know, a lot of that cuisine, um, it's really diverse. There is no like monolithic Filipino cuisine, but like certainly dishes that are highlights are made from kind of cast-offs, right? Sisig, which is made from pig's head and um, spam fried rice, right? Just the stuff, the, the military surplus from the army bases in the Philippines. Let's transition now to your work in the broader world of food. You've been an executive chef and you launched the podcast Racist Sandwich a few years back. How have these experiences shaped how you now write about food? Mm. So I was really, when I was in school, I got really deep into sociology and also post-structuralism. I found those to be really interesting tools for thinking about the world that we live in especially with post-structuralism and the way that we are meant to treat things as texts, right? The way we are meant to read a room, literally, um, and think about the ways in which every aspect of a scene plays into ideology, engages in discourse, tells us about human society and what we value and what we think other people value. So there's that. But the flip side is that going to school did not teach me how to talk to human beings about this stuff. It taught me how to read books by philosophers, and it taught me how to talk to other people who have studied the same stuff, but it didn't really teach me how to talk to people and translate those ideas into words that they could understand. <laughs> so working as a cook um, especially taught me how to—it brought me down to earth a little bit more because you're working with a really diverse group of people all the time, and you meet them where they're at. Otherwise, you're not going to get anything done. You're not going to be able to talk to them about anything. Because it is like the ultimate mixed crowd. And so, yeah, I had an imperative to really understand what I was trying to say and like really think about my language so that I didn't come off in a way that wasn't right or generative or amenable. And then working by making podcasts taught me how to actually articulate myself even better. You know, radio is so hard. You lose people really quickly if you're talking on and on and on and on and using words that they don't understand and so you really try to be articulate and just brief and really think about the words that you're saying. With podcasting in general, because I was doing so many interviews, I had to think about how each and every guest had something to say. And you just had to like get that out of them to get really good audio. I never thought of myself as a good conversationalist, but I had to learn those skills in order to actually make a, a show. So with Racist Sandwich, what were you trying to accomplish with the stories that you were helping to tell? So Race Sandwich came out of a frustration with food media. You know, food media was very much mired into these old-fashioned ideas about who was actually consuming it. They were assuming that it was like affluent, white, hetero people. And that in turn produced work that spoke only to them and mar like really marginalized people who didn't fit that mold. You know, they would run articles that were like explainers about how to eat pho and they would treat food that people have eaten at home or in the world as strange and 
exotic, like empanadas. You know, that's just a normal thing that people eat. Not to say that they're not exceptional and that there are ways in which to make those foods exceptional, but celebrate that rather than just their, their strangeness to white culture. So I observed all of that just, you know, as a consumer of food media. And I thought, okay, there surely is demand for stories that are not that. You know, there's so much expansiveness within the genre. So where can we find those stories? So the podcast came out of a conversation with me and my friend Zahir, and he's an Indian-American journalist. And he thought we should just make a show where we do those stories all the time. And we have like as close to 100% like guest list of people of color as possible because that's possible. You know, we don't have to just run black stories in February or queer stories in June. Like we can actually just make that every episode. You know, um, we're not an exception. We are just everyday people who are making food and have amazing stories about food. So that was that was basically the idea. With your current work as a food critic, walk us through the process. How do you pick which places to review? And what are you tasting for or perhaps looking for beyond a restaurant's food? Oh, sure. So um, I just started working as the critic nine months ago, and I had to kind of figure out my whole process myself because everyone has their own process. Um, the ground rules basically are I write one review a week. I go to a restaurant three times before I write about it. And um, that's basically it. I try to diversify too, not in terms of like the race or ethnicity of the food or restaurateurs, but that's also a factor, but also in terms of geography. I don't only just want to review restaurants in San Francisco. I want to like go to Oakland and Berkeley, Palo Alto, uh, San Jose, other places like that. And then I, um, so I go to the restaurants. Usually I have a, I have a list of like 200 that I might go to. And I just kind of try to see what slots into my schedule. Sometimes I, uh, I'll go and I just don't feel anything. So I go to the restaurant and I just, the food is mediocre. Nothing's happening. Um, you know, it's like when you meet somebody and you're just like, you don't click. There's no chemistry, good or bad. You're just like, okay, maybe I'll call you. You know, sometimes restaurants are like that. And you're just like, uh, maybe not. So sometimes there's duds. Other times I sit down and I just feel like there's a story that wants to be told either about something bigger like colonialism or cultural appropriation or something smaller like this family is running this restaurant in this like really difficult neighborhood and they're really trying to make it work and here's how. I think that's really interesting as well. So yeah, I mean, it's up to me. It's up to my discretion to figure out like what I can do. Because in the end, like if I can't sustain like 1500 words about this place, then it's not worth it, you know? And there's just more mediocre than exceptional in the world just by principle. So it's kind of up to me to decide and really like curate that. Do you make your presence known at the restaurant to the chefs or the owners? Oh, no. <laughs> um, no, uh, I really don't. Because often if I do, um, first of all, that comes off really bad. Um, you don't want to trot yourself in and demand special treatment. Because, I mean, that's awful. And, you know, often that sends the kitchen into a panic. Everyone starts panicking when they know that you're coming. So that's bad. And three, I want to get as authentic an experience as possible. If I were a normal human being who wasn't going to write about this restaurant, how would they treat me? You know, to me, that's more important, right? Like, you don't want to hear about how I was given a bunch of free stuff. That's boring. 
you want to know how you'd be treated at a restaurant. So that's what I think about. Another part of what is important here, too, is when I go to a restaurant, it's not just about the food that's on the plate in front of me. I really look at the space. I look at the people in it, the music. All of these things are telling me something, a message about what the owner values and what they think I want as a diner. And to me, that's a very, very, very um, contextual. It's very socially determined. And to me, that's where the story is. You know, what do we want right now? What does the city want? And what do people think that we want? And does it match or is there a mismatch? So when you go to review these restaurants, do you go with people or alone or does it vary? It varies. Sometimes I can't find anybody and I'm just like, I just want to pop in real quick to see the vibe and like kind of feel it out. Usually at least one of my visits is just solo because also, I mean, solo diners get treated a certain way too. Sometimes they get treated worse or better or, you know, you never know. And a lot of people do go out to eat alone. So it's nice to know there are places that they can sit where they don't feel like weird. So there's that. And I try though to go with a bunch of people, especially with a restaurant that has a big menu, just so we can try as much as possible. Because otherwise I would just be going home with like huge bags of leftovers every day. So I want people to eat too. (laughs) And so I try to spread out who is going with me as far as, I try to make it pretty diverse. And so I know that I have a friend who is, for instance, gender non-binary, and they're going to have a very different experience if it's a restaurant that doesn't have like gender neutral restrooms or If I have a friend who can't use stairs, like they will tell me I can't go through this place. I usually don't inflict that on people who are who are not able to use stairs because that would be a miserable night for them. But like at the very least, they'll tell me um, they'll help me point out like what is a challenge as far as accessibility goes. So things like that, because I know that I have like dead angles. There are places where I am not I just don't have the lived experience to internalize quite yet. And so it's always good to have a bunch of friends or colleagues who are able to tell me and fill in those gaps. When you do go with people to a reveal restaurant, do you also take into account their opinions of specific foods that they're all eating? Sometimes. I personally don't like it when restaurant critics write about their dining companions too much. Like my companion said that this looks like a piece of crap, you know. Because I think it's the critic's job to describe food and like talk about food. It's not your friend's job. Rarely is it that interesting. You know, the friend is there to help you eat the food and help you experience the restaurant. The writing and the ideas should come from you as a writer. So after you've written reviews of restaurants, how do you engage with them? The restaurants themselves? Yes. Oh, man. Um, Sometimes I will send them the review. Other times they'll, I mean, usually they're looking for it anyway. And so they'll like see it right before I even have a chance to like send it to them. I'm usually not supposed to fraternize with restaurant people because, you know, ethics stuff. I don't want to muddy the waters and like, you know, make friends. And then I'm like, oh, no, I can't write about my friends. It's just fair to everyone. And so I try to keep my distance. But sometimes I'll get really good feedback from, from restaurateurs who are super excited um, the best possible feedback for me is from a restaurateur who is like, who feels seen by the review. I try to do that a lot. You know, that's part of reading for me is interpreting what is put in front of me and like kind of thinking about what it says about 
the people who not only open the restaurant, but the people who live around it and people who go to it. And if I get it correct, then that's great. (laughs) Sometimes I'm not, um, but it's still a valid reading. Compared to audio, what works well or what might not work well about print and food? Uh, So what I like about print, oh, actually digital. So I write mostly, I think about online manifestations of work a lot more just because of where I am and who I am. Um, I am kind of a link demon. And so I, I put a lot of hyperlinks in my reviews because, you know, if I'm talking about, it's a way of annotating, right? Um, so I don't have to like explain. If I mention like a scene from a film, I can just link to that scene also. Explain it a little bit, but at least like people can watch it if they want to and then like fill in the gaps themselves, that sort of stuff. And so I think that's a virtue of online writing that you don't really get in audio or in print. Audio is great in that you can, I think there's something really special about hearing someone's voice too. And you can kind of, it feels different. It just hits you different, you know? And there's ways that you can kind of dress up the sound and use like archival sound and things like that. That's that's really fun. And people just engage with it differently. Um, With print, there are really interesting ways of presenting the work that also can hit you in a particular way. You know, they're all really different forms. So I'd like to bring the question back to word choice. Mm. What's your hope in being very deliberate in what you write? Well, I kind of think that if I don't think about words and how to use them well, I'm not really a writer, you know? Words are kind of a way that we communicate a world that we want, right? And communicate our values. If you use, you know, um, gosh, what's a not horrible example. (laughs) If you use the word ethnic, for instance, to talk about an ethnic neighborhood or an ethnic restaurant, it says a lot about what you think of people too. I think it's not unreasonable to read into the words that people use. That makes it really hard for people when I argue with them because I hold them to account for the words they use and they're just like, I didn't mean it that way, but like, but didn't you? Uh, Why didn't you, why did you just use that word? With ethnic, for instance, if you're saying, I want to go to an ethnic restaurant today, what does that mean? Like, what restaurant? Like, what kind of restaurant? And what kinds of restaurants are excluded from that? And you can extrapolate then into, like, what is ethnic? And, like, whose ethnicity is distinguishable is an exception to some default notion that you hold in your head. Um, Not that people are to blame for that, but more just, like, it is indicative of, like, white supremacy, for instance or, you know, racial homogeneity, or things like that, where I think it's a good entry point into having these bigger conversations, just like with food. And I think about that a lot, because, you know, there are so many words. I I love vocabulary. I love reading, and I love learning about words and semantics and linguistics. And there are just so many words that we stopped using um, for good reason. And I think that Language evolves, right? And I want to be part of that conversation and help kind of usher in better ways of saying things. What do you hope that your writing conveys to readers about doing better, perhaps not just as better eaters or consumers, but as people? Mm. Um, I think I have this very like irritating Virgo streak <laughs> where I'm, I'm, just tr- I'm just telling people how to live. And I just embrace that because I think that... 
I don't want to say it's 100% because of political divisiveness, whatever that is. I'm like putting up air quotes. But more, I want to help model conversations and like ways of thinking. Like that's my function as a journalist, as a critic especially. My job isn't to be right. It's to show people one way of thinking about something. So, you know, for anything, like if it's art, if it's a film, if it's a book, all of these works are like icebergs. You know, um, if you just engage with the work in itself, you see like the tip, right? And the critic isn't showing you the entirety of it. They're not showing you like a 3D, you know, sonar imagining of it, but they are taking a flashlight and showing you like one side of that iceberg and showing you this particularly interesting like divot on the side, you know, and here's one way to look at it. And so you can use that knowledge to kind of think about, okay, maybe the shape of the iceberg is this, or maybe it's that. And so I think about how like a critic is supposed to spark conversation and debate in the end, not to not to like pop off with like spicy takes and like freak people out, but more just, okay, if we really put our minds to it, we can use food to have a conversation about race or class or gender in a way that feels good to everyone in a way that actually is meaningful and helpful and illustrative so that we can have these bigger conversations in life in general. Because I think, especially because there's such a divide between, you know, academia and like politics and just mainstream life, I want to help bridge those gaps and help people just be conversant. These aren't conversations that you should just have when you're mad. What do you love most about your job as a food critic? Mm. It's nice to never be hungry. It's really like on an animal level. It's nice to just never have to worry. I, I mean, I guess that's not true. So I was going to say I never have to worry about where my next meal comes from, but that's actually the opposite of what I do. What I do is always worry about where my next meal is coming from because each meal is very important. Um, so I have spreadsheets on spreadsheets of like my calendar and then like which restaurants I'm going to and like where they are and all the info about them. And so that's very anxiety ridden. What I will say though, is I think it's amazing to get to know a city through its restaurants. It's amazing to get to know the Bay area through the kinds of food that people eat when they're going out and just trying to relax and have a good time. It says so much about society and it's such a, you know, it's such a ripe field for me to be in as someone who likes to pick things apart and talk about why things are the way they are. So few genres are so full of assumptions and unspoken rules as food. And I love just exposing all of them. It really messes with people. Thanks so much, Soleil, for talking with me today. Thank you. From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. To follow more of Soleil's work, Follow Hule on Twitter and Instagram, or visit soleildeho.com. Her weekly newsletter at The Chronicle is called Bite Curious. This episode was produced by myself, Thomas Hagen, Amy Zhang, Lin Nguyen, and Alexa Stanger. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Louis De Felice. Artwork by Logan Howard. Program support by Jacqueline Munno, Jeremy Oldfield, Noah Macy, and Mark Bomford. Special thanks to the Pointer Fellowship in Journalism, Timothy Dwight College, the Asian American Cultural Center at Yale, and the Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration for supporting Soleil's visit. We'll see you in two weeks.